Now we're joined by the experts at Vetify, a new data analytics and thought leadership company that is transforming financial services from an industry to a community, one relationship at a time. There's a couple of different ways to slice and dice these various ETFs. They can hold what are called total return swaps. Expect the unexpected. Laura, thanks for joining me this week. Great having you back on the podcast. Always glad to be here. Thank you. All right. So before we get to our uh, our grab bag of topics, I would be remiss if I didn't mention something that Vetify actually flagged yesterday, which is a big milestone for ETFs. So there are now over 3,000 ETFs trading uh, across that mark, I believe, on Friday. And I'm just curious, as someone who has been involved with the ETF industry for quite a while now, what are your thoughts on this uh, on this milestone? I think it's pretty cool, actually. <laughs> so uh, let's uh, let's copy out the news by saying that it's uh, three thousand ETFs that are actively trading, uh, which is different than three thousand have launched, right? Um, because there are many more that have launched and then subsequently closed. That's just the nature of the business. It's expensive to run an ETF, and not every ETF hits a sustainable level. But that said, it's kind of been wild to see how quickly the ETF industry has grown, especially in the last two years. Since I've been part of it, the industry has grown in fits and starts. You know, there's been some good years where lots of products launch and then some bad years where many close. Um, but just in the past two years, it's been a Cambrian explosion of ETFs. I'd even say in the last couple of months since single stock ETFs have launched, right? And that's all kind of, you know, it comes back to late 2019 when the ETF rule passed, the SEC made it easier, cheaper for anybody to get into the ETF market. And when you make it easier and you make it cheaper to launch ETFs, more people are going to launch ETFs. So I, I think that that is the main impetus and continues to be the main impetus as to why we're seeing so many funds launch now. And why uh, many of the ETFs that may have otherwise closed because they couldn't get enough assets after a certain point, why they have been staying uh, around a little bit longer. All excellent points. You know, it's interesting because as we look towards the end of the year, I mean, I wonder how quickly are we going to hit 4,000 or 5,000? You mentioned single stock ETFs. <laughs> we could be crossing another milestone in, in fairly short order. Uh, but I, I uh, you may have seen this. I tweeted this out yesterday. So 10 years ago, there were only 1,200 or so ETFs on the market. 20 years ago, just a little over 100. So it, it shows you how far we've come. It, it's uh, remarkable. Um, okay, let's get to uh, our grab bag of topics here. And I want to start with uh, these two noteworthy stories in the ETF world last week. And the first one, I know we talk a lot about uh, ARC on the podcast. I just find them to be such a fascinating case study. I, I mean, you think about this. They've been to the top of the mountain. They've uh, traveled into the, the, the depths of the valley. They've truly experienced it all over the past few years. But I think one thing that's clear is uh, they're here to stay. And, and we can talk more about why I think that is. I, I know you agree, but... On that note, last week they issued a press release where they named Brett Winton, who was ARC's director of research, they named him to the role of chief futurist. And yes, mm -hmm. I did think of your colleague, Dave Nodig. He absolutely <laughs> deserves some credit here. Uh, he's the first person I ever saw with futurist in his title. He's financial futurist. But uh, 
There were some rumblings that maybe uh, Brett is being groomed as the successor to Kathy Wood. And so the first question that I have for you is, we, we don't know if that's actually the case, right? But do you think ARC is now in a strong enough position where they no longer need the star power of Kathy Wood? In, in other words, do you think they've grown to a point where the ARC brand stands on its own, which I would view as a, a, a tremendous accomplishment for Kathy Wood? I, I think it has. And genuinely, I don't think that Kathy Wood is as much of a household name as uh, we in the FinTwit circles or, or the media circles would like to believe. I think ARC kind of stands on its own. Now, there's a, a, a devoted uh, fan base that she has, a lot of detractors and naysayers. But to the extent that she, her personality, her comments or whatever, influencing flows in and out of the ARC suite, Maybe that was true 10 years ago, but I think you'd be hard-pressed to make that argument now. Um, I think, you know, she's been put into the spotlight uh, partly because she makes a very compelling um, figurehead, for sure. But part of it, too, is that she's an outspoken woman who speaks with conviction, and that's, uh, you know, draws out a certain crowd, right, who want nothing more than to, you know, tear that down. So... Um, you know, I, I think if she were some bald white guy named Bob, she never would have become the favorite hero or villain of the story, uh, depending on your perspective. So to the point you made about Brett, yeah, I mean, chief futurist, kind of partial to the title. I love it a little bit, you know, a little biased here for sure. Um, but if you look at, you just spend five minutes, 10 minutes poking around the vast library of research that the ARC team has available for free on their website, the newsletters that they're producing, the white papers, you'll see that ARC really isn't just the Kathy Wood show or, you know, the Brett Winton show in the future. It's a team of deeply knowledgeable and well-sourced experts who are often spotting trends before they become market shifting events. And so if you want to see why, or if you, you want to um, understand why ARC has the devoted fan base that they do, I don't think you look to Kathy Wood. I think you look to the white papers that they are putting out and you look to, um, you know, just the conviction with which the whole team, the whole company um, puts into their, into their investment uh, choices. Well, and to your point on the bench that they've developed, what's interesting to me is they've gone outside of the traditional asset management uh, space to find some of those individuals who they brought on board. And, and to your point on, uh, on on the hypothetical Bob, you know, they've had some rocks thrown their way because people feel like they've hired people from other disciplines, not asset management. Kathy, though, views that as a real benefit, that she's bringing a diversity of thought into the room. And, you know, one of the reasons they can think outside the box. But um, I, I agree. I mean, clearly they're, they're building out a, a bench there, and it'll be interesting to see what happens moving forward. I will mention that Kathy Wood is still a very young 66, and she has given absolutely zero indication she's planning on retiring anytime soon. <laughs> I just want to make that clear. <laughs> There's just been some rumblings, especially with this press release, that you know maybe she is thinking about a succession plan down the road. Let, let me ask you this. Because of the success that ARC has had, uh, especially in 2020, we, we then saw a lot of copycat ETFs launch, both on the active and index-based side. A, a lot of, uh, quote-unquote, disruptive tech ETFs, or whatever you want to call them. Do you think even with that type of competition, ARC has established themselves well enough with or without Kathy? 
Oh, absolutely. I don't think any of the copycat ETFs, uh, you can just look at the flows. I don't think any of them have quite captured the arc magic because in part, their disruptive innovation ETFs are just, I mean, often they're just one ETF that's part of a larger ETF suite and it's not their specialty. Whereas for ARC, disruptive technology, this cross-sector approach, that's all they do. It's their whole bread and butter. And so that kind of specialization matters when you're trying to spot alpha opportunities in the market that other firms aren't able to spot. So I don't think they have any threat to their throne. Yeah, I think the best thing that Kathy did over the past year and a half was stick to her knitting. Uh, she didn't mm -hmm. waver on her strategy and in her conviction and so I do think the ARC brand is strong enough to stand on its own because people know exactly what they're going to get with these ETFs. And as long as whoever is uh, captaining the ship moves, you know, moving forward, as long as they do the same, I feel like, to, to your point, the ARC brand is synonymous with disruptive tech. And that's going to find an audience with investors. It'll find an audience with traders who want to make a quick tactical play on the space. And then even short sellers who know that they can count on if they're shorting the space, they're going to get uh, the, the, you know, the, the, the return movements that they would expect because Kathy stuck to what, what she said she was going to do. Um, Laura, I know everyone is uh, well aware of the performance ride that ARCs had, right? They, they, they absolutely did knock the cover off the ball in 2020. And then starting in about February of last year, it's been a tough go. I, I mean, I looked this morning, ARKK, the, the flagship ETF, that's down about 70% since last February and over 50% year to date. And one of the stories I feel like over that time frame, over that past you know year or so, has been that d despite the performance, the ARK lineup as a whole was still taking in net new money. But that's actually changed now. So if you look year to date, uh, the, the flows have now turned negative across the lineup. And in August, ARKK, well, it's still taken in uh, about a billion dollars, a little over a billion dollars this year. It actually had its largest monthly outflow since last September. And altogether, I show about a little less than $5 billion has come out of the ARK lineup uh, over the past 12 months. Now, again, as we just talked about, I know we both agree ARC's here to stay. They're not going anywhere. But do those flows concern you at all? Is there anything to take away here? Because, again, the narrative had been, despite the performance, investors will, were still putting money to work in the ARC lineup. But, but that does appear to have changed at least somewhat here. So a couple of things. One, ARKK specifically is one of the most traded ETFs on the planet. You know, if the flows look positive, just wait a week, right? And then, or change the time range that you're looking at by a few days, and then it looks negative again. So that's what happens when you have such an extremely liquid fund as ARKK becomes a trading instrument as much as a buy and hold investment. And so the flows kind of, uh, you know, sometimes revert to a mean. So for example, you know, over the past year, we've had hundreds of billions of dollars of ARK shares, or ARKK shares traded, but netted out over the past 12 months, the fund has only gained 10 million in, in new net assets, the million with an M. So, um, you know, it's, it's a very, uh, vibrantly traded fund. Uh, and, uh, that, that is one aspect of it, but you know, you're right to, there is a trend of, uh, recent outflows. And I think it comes back to, uh, honestly, the inflation and rate environment that we're seeing, right? So 2022 has been a really tough time and really tough environment for growth stocks, whether, Whenever you have rates on the rise again, that's going to be tough 
for growthy startups, like the kind that you find in the ARC portfolios, it's going to be tough for them to find and secure financing at reasonable rates. That's going to impact their ability to deliver return. And you've heard me say this ad infinitum. Now, it's not limited to the ARC product suite, and we've seen double-digit negative returns for all sorts of growth-oriented techie funds. Um, probably a good thing because, you know, valuations were getting a little overheated in 2021, um, especially towards the end. So I think eventually market conditions are going to get to the point folks start to buy again. Um, some investors, I believe, thought that moment was upon us in early August. We started to see the inflation prints coming out um, that were a little bit, uh, you know, a little bit more uh, optimistic, I suppose. Then, you know, the Fed meeting happened and the growth rally fizzled and, and all of that. But it did demonstrate to me that there are advisors and investors who want to allocate and they're just waiting on the sidelines for the right time to get back in. And when they do, ARKK, specifically being the flagship fund, that one's going to benefit the most. Well, and again, I'll come back to what I said earlier, because Kathy Wood and ARK stuck to what they do best and what they have portrayed uh, you know, out to the public. If and when things turn, they're going to be huge beneficiaries here. Exactly. You always know what you're going to get with an ARK fund. You always know what the, um, you know, because they stick to their knitting, they stick to their convictions. Um, there are some uh, other, you know, ETFs out there that, you know, it, it's a little bit more wishy-washy, but, you know, you may not always agree with the calls that ARC is making. You may not always um, think that they were the right ones or that they may not have borne fruit, right? But at least you know what to expect with them. Yeah. And you can see what they're doing every day, by the way. Daily exactly. transparency, all the research is out in public. All right. Uh, let's move on and, and talk about a first in the ETF industry, and that's the first inverse blockchain ETF. It comes from uh, Defiance ETFs. It's called the Defiance Daily Short Digitizing the Economy ETF, ticker IBIT, I-B-I-T. So this offers daily inverse exposure to the Amplified Transformational Data Sharing ETF, ticker B-L-O-K, block. Now, I, I alluded to this at the top. That ETF block is down nearly 45% this year. And you look at the blockchain ETF space as a whole. I mean, that that entire segment has just been obliterated. Some of the worst performing ETFs that are out there. So what do you think about the timing of this inverse blockchain ETF? Uh, is it a little late to the party or, or I guess the, uh, the, the bloodbath here? I think maybe it might have been an even more fortuitous timing to have launched the fund three months ago, rather, or maybe six months ago. So it could, uh, while blockchain was, you know, declining, it could be riding up. But a lot of that stuff is out of the hands of, it's out of anybody's control. So, you know, I have a couple of thoughts on this. One, I kind of expected this a little bit earlier in the life cycle of, uh, you know, the blockchain and Bitcoin um, ecosystem, especially uh, because, you know, well, honestly, we've seen a couple, you mentioned that this was one of those ETFs that takes a base ETF and then offers short exposure on it, uh, inverse exposure. Uh, I kind of expected that to be a little bit more popular of an idea, and it hasn't been so with uh, issuers. Um, you know, Block is the biggest blockchain ETF on the market. Its assets are remarkably sticky right? You pointed out that the fund is down, what, 45, 50% year to date, but net outflows over the same period 
it's only 28 million. And so that's barely a blip for the fund, which was over 1 billion in AUM before you know the big crypto uh, winter knocked all the um, you know the the wind out of its sails. So I I think uh, IBIT is a really interestingly struct like all of these ETFs very uh, interestingly structured fund, um, but it may just be uh, walking into a market uh, at the at the wrong time. To your point on how long this took to come to market, I do wonder whether the SEC was a roadblock here. Uh, you know, mm. we, we all know it's been well documented how skittish the SEC has been around spot ETFs. But even in the blockchain ETF space, I'm sure you recall, I mean, back when the first products launched, they they couldn't even have blockchain in the name, which is why we have yeah. something called the transformational data sharing <laughs> ETF. But I, I wonder if they were a, a, a hindrance to getting something to market quicker. Let, let me ask you this. What about the construction of this ETF? I know you and I always like to uh, make a point of highlighting some of the risks involved with daily reset ETFs. Do you have any quick comments regarding the actual construction of IBIT? Yeah, sure. So IBIT, you know, achieves that short exposure by buying swaps agreements and selling short selling shares of block. And uh, what I think is interesting is that they picked an active ETF, right? So block is actively managed. It's uh, portfolio can change on a weekly, daily basis. And sometimes it does change on a daily basis. That has helped Block's managers mitigate the losses when other index-based blockchain ETFs have been bleeding out. So, um, you know, it's important to note that IBIT's not holding the companies that are in Block. It's not holding shares of Block. It's holding, it's going to the derivatives market to get that exposure. Um, And I have to give the same caveat that I give every time we talk about leveraged and inverse products and that it's, you know, the exposure resets on a daily basis. So, Return can and does often drift from just a pure negative 1x or pure positive 2x multiple on that underlying asset. Trending markets, not too big of a deal, but in sideways or non-trending markets, any tiny little blip in the underlying index or assets price is going to be amplified in a geared product, which means that the return Uh, of that product is going to vary uh, vastly at times from the vanilla version. And so it's going to get that return difference is going to increase the longer you hold the fund. So just be careful of what you own and what you won't. Don't forget that you own it. This is not a set and forget instrument. That's why I brought this up. I knew you would do an excellent job of driving home that point. Very important on daily reset products, uh, in in this case, an inverse product. Um, Laura, in terms of the uh, the long blockchain ETF space, I, I'm sure you saw this because actually I think you were on uh, Bloom, Bloomberg's uh, ETF IQ, yeah. if I recall correctly. But Bloomberg had a piece that noted there's been nearly 20 blockchain or crypto ETFs that have launched over the past few years. And, and again, you heard me right. The actual number is 18, 18 of these ETFs. <laughs> but uh, this article was written by uh, Katie Greifield. And she noted how BLOK has a correlation of 0.9 or greater with 14 of these 18 ETFs. So in other words, a lot of these own the same underlying holdings and they're doing a lot of the same things and you're basically getting the same exposure. My question for you is how many of these ETFs uh, can survive? This this space just seems so oversaturated to me, especially, uh, again, if many of these are going to offer pretty much the same exposure. Gosh, I, you know, honestly, I thought some of them would have closed by now. 
right? <laughs> the clip, this crypto winter has not been kind to the space. You're seeing a lot of crypto companies uh, pulling back on marketing budgets. I think eventually a bloodbath in the ETF space is coming. Um, it has happened before, right? Like we saw a wave of closures in the blockchain ETF uh, land uh, about five or maybe seven years ago. Uh, reality shares hadn't fund the uh, closed and some others closed and so on. So um, you know, it has happened before and it can and probably should happen again. Um, I think maybe there's, it's possible that everybody in ETF land is waiting for someone to blink first. Maybe it's a factor of um, it's now, uh, you know, the, the ETF rule makes it cheaper to just get into the ETF market. So maybe they have more cash. And I don't know. I don't know why, but it's coming. <laughs> it's coming. Well, it's going to be tough sledding. I mean, look, I think BLOK, clearly they've established themselves as the market leader in this space. Yeah. I think they're not going anywhere. But the challenge here is you look at some of the names that have come into this segment of the market. I mean, you have names like iShares and Schwab and Fidelity, big brands that can offer uh, the, the exposure at a very low price point. And, you know, those firms are probably going to stick by those products for, for longer than maybe some of the, the smaller firms out there. It's just I think it's going to be a really tough, uh, you know, hill to climb here for these blockchain ETFs. I was just going to say, I'm, I'm, I'm wondering if maybe it's the opposite, to be honest, because the smaller companies are a little bit more higher conviction. And, and, you know, in some cases, like, for example, Valkyrie, that's all they do is crypto. Um, and so maybe they have the conviction to stick with the ETF versus the bigger companies, which are just, you know, launching ETFs in the crypto space because they have to be in the crypto space. They, they need that sort of exposure in their fund lineup. And, uh, you know, maybe clients were asking for it and, uh, you know, so on. But, um, I mean, I, I wonder. No, I, I think that's a great point. I mean, I've talked before. You think about a firm like Grayscale, their future finance ETF, or Bitwise. Those firms clearly have crypto street cred. And I right. do think that that counts for something in this space. And as I think about advisors uh, potentially allocating a small satellite position of this, a thematic play, having that crypto street cred appear on a client statement, I can see how that would be viewed as beneficial. Right. Where maybe the core of your portfolio is the iShares and the Schwabs and the Vanguards, you know, having somebody with that that crypto name brand could could make sense. So I, I agree. I think that's a that's a good point. I'm just I'll be fascinated to watch this space because I've been shocked at how many launches there have been in this category. I think because the SEC uh, has been reluctant to approve a spot Bitcoin ETF, obviously a lot of issuers were looking for an end around. And, and how can they you know, tan tangentially get exposure uh, to this space. And, and so there was these blockchain ETFs that uh, that was the answer. And so they were all in the lab cooking up yeah. products. And now we have a bunch of, uh, I call them Frankenstein uh, crypto ETFs out there, but <laughs> we'll see. All right, let's close with a little ETF nerd trivia. So there is an ETF out there that's taken in about $8 billion this year, and it's gone from zero to nearly 13 billion in assets in just over two years. Now, I'm gonna let you do the honors here. I know you've been tracking this ETF. So tell us what this is, uh, what's been going on. And for the ETF nerds, if you get this right, you get to download next week's podcast for free. 
<laughs> Sorry, I don't have any good. Uh, I don't have any good uh, door prizes. Uh, I, I need to come up with something. An NFT. I've seen some podcasts doing NFTs, but uh, Lord, give us the give us the ETF. All right, drum roll, please. It's actually the J.P. Morgan Equity Income ETF. That's ticker JEPI, J-E-P-I, and this fund has just been astonishing. Uh, an astonishing success story over 2022 specifically, really under the radar. Uh, you know, so in July, I noticed um, that Jeppy was kind of leapfrogging over literally hundreds of tickers in our database in terms of how much research it was seeing from investors out there. It went from something like the 200th most popular ETF to the fourth in the span of weeks. And that's in part because Jeppy's yield is just, it's, it's obscenely good right now, right? It's been that way for a while. Folks are looking for viable income options. They're seeking that income from the equity markets and from the options markets, which is what Jeppy provides. And it, they're still looking for it there, even though uh, bond ETFs are starting to actually provide meaningful income again. If you look at a high yield ETF, though, it's giving you a yield of, what, 7 8% if you're lucky. Jeppy is, right now, I just checked it last night, it's providing a yield of almost 12%. And when it started to get super popular in the research uh, side of things, um, Jeppy was providing a 14% monthly yield. So, I mean, that's pretty juicy, right? So, like you said, the ETF has brought in about $8 billion in new net assets. Just an astonishing ride. Um, there are a number of ETFs in kind of the same wheelhouse as Jeppy that use options strategies like covered calls or buy right strategies or so on to provide income based on some underlying in you know, big, large cap index usually. Uh, but Jeppy is consistently providing the highest income of all of them. So um, at the same time, it's not necessarily offering the same downside protection that other ETFs out there offer, but investors clearly do not mind. They're probably sourcing that protection elsewhere in their portfolio. And so they're laser focused on that yield. Uh, and I don't see any um, indication that the yield is going to be uh, going away anytime soon. Yeah. And just to add a little color to the ETF itself for people who may not be familiar with Jeppy, basically mm. this is a uh, defensive equity portfolio. So it's certainly value focused. Uh, targets lower volatility stocks. One difference between this ETF and say just a low vol ETF is they have cap uh, or they cap the sector exposure there. And then and then what they're doing, I think kind of the secret sauce is they're writing covered calls on the S&P 500. So these are out of the money. They reset uh, a portion of those on a weekly basis. So it's sort of a, a laddered covered call strategy. But, uh, you know, a couple other data points I'll throw out here. So Jeppy is number 11 in flows year to date out of all ETFs. And you look at the top 10 leaderboard, it's a who's who. It's the, the, the usual suspects in your BOOs and VTIs and those sorts of things. But Jeppy's knocking on the door of the top 10, number 11 year to date. This is also now the largest actively managed equity ETF. Again, I think we need to, to reemphasize that. Well, one thing I'm curious about um, Laura, you know, you look at performance. I talk a lot with your colleague, Tom Hendrickson, about uh, Vetify platform interest. And typically when uh, he has seen spikes in ETFs, you can trace that back to performance as well. And if you look at performance year to date, Jeppy's only down about 4%. SPY, last I checked, was down about 13% after the, uh, the up move yesterday. But ha have you seen this, uh, this ETF 
rise to the surface on the Vetify platform just in terms of uh, what advisors or, or investors are researching? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Jeppy, like I said, um, you know, a second ago, it, it has uh, just skyrocketed over the last two months in terms of popularity and research traffic on our platform. Um, it is gone, uh, you know, it, it is now the fourth most researched ETF on, uh, yeah, which is frankly uh, wild to me. You know, it's, it's beating out, you know, VTI and, uh, you know, all the ARC funds and so on. You bring up a really good point about uh, the portfolio of Jeppy, which um, you know isn't just a, um, a vanilla um, S and P five hundred exposure, right? Uh, some of these income products out there uh, do just provide, uh, you know, they, they hold the S and P five hundred stocks or they hold whatever you know index stocks, and then write cover calls on top of that. Um, Jeppy's doing a little bit more, right? They're 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 uh, being a little bit more selective in the uh, the equities that they're choosing, uh, or the managers are choosing, and then on top of that, writing the cover call. I should have emphasized that a little bit more earlier, um, and I think that is what the secret sauce is. Those two things together have helped provide the just outsized income. Um, that we're seeing for the fund. Well, I want to hear from all of our uh, ETF nerd listeners. How many of you knew which ETF this was this year? I know some <laughs> did, but I, I'm curious to, for, for those of you who maybe didn't. Uh, Laura, always love having you on the uh, podcast. So much fun this week. A great list of topics. Thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. That was Laura Krigger, Editor-in-Chief at Vetify.